when I left Twilio, I realized that most of the world was behind. Most of the people that are doing API design, it was crap. It was terrible. It was miserable. It was inconsistent, unpredictable. It wasn't version well. There are all these issues. From Toro Cloud, this is the Coding Over Cocktails podcast, a free pool of thoughts, ideas, and advice from IT experts, innovators, and thought leaders exploring the world of digital transformation, APIs, microservices, cloud adoption, and more. Welcome to episode 78 of Coding Over Cocktails. My name is David Brown. Our guest for today serves as the product uh, at the product team of Ngrok, helping teams launch their systems faster and easier than ever before. Previously, he served on the product team at Okta, working on identity and authentication APIs. He was also an early developer evangelist at Twilio and worked to answer the ultimate geek question at the Library of Congress. His underlying goal is to get good technology in the hands of good people and do great things. In his spare time, he writes at cassiesoftware.com and shares his experience of a lifestyle change living amongst the trees. He's also the co-author of A Practical Approach to API Design. Joining us today for a round of cocktails is Keith Cassie. Hi, Keith. Great to have you on the show. Great. Thank you. I, I sound quite impressive when you read it like that. I love it. <laughs> a bio is intended to sound impressive. So it, it, it has the intended consequence. That's good. And it should do as well. You have amazing experience and uh, a great new role at Engrock. And, and uh, I want to talk to you about your book as well. So let's first of all start uh, talking about your role at Engrock. It's a fairly recent thing, right? Uh, yeah, I guess I've been there about 11 months now. So yeah, relatively recent. And, and what and what is your role? Are you evangelizing the product and, and educating the market? Yeah, so I'm on the go-to-market team. Uh, as of the, this moment, I'm a third of the overall marketing team. And really, my, my entire job there is to be able to show people what to do, uh, how to do it, why it's important, those sorts of things, and then amplify people doing good things. Uh, most people, if they're familiar with Ingrock at all, it's because they use us to uh, connect their webhooks from the Twilio's, from the Slacks, from Salesforce, whatever, down into their local environment. And we do that. We do that really well. But it's that's really just only the beginning. If you start layering in things like uh, OAuth 2.0, you could do that in, I think it takes 12 characters to enable Google as your OAuth provider. Uh, you could do IP restrictions. You could start doing webhook verification. You could do so much more stuff that frankly, people aren't aware of yet. And so it's my job to go out and talk about it. Well, that's that's a good point because uh, I think myself included, uh, was very familiar with Ngrok as that solution to get something which is publicly web-based connecting to your local computer. For an example, at uh, Toro, we have a desktop application which has a server runtime. So if you wanted to publish that on a, you know, make it publicly available, you can use Ngrok to do that. So tell me about some of these other features. You mentioned OAuth, for example, in, was it 12 lines or 12 characters? Tell me about a bit more about that. That sounds interesting. Yeah. So uh, we really set it up. Well, one of the things we realized is that opening up your local environment can be scary. In fact, it's often terrifying, especially like to security IT compliance folks, they freak out at that. Uh, so one of the first things we want to do is be able to put some restrictions in place. So we added things like IP restrictions to be able to say, no, only this IP range or this particular IP address can access my stuff. So that comes in really useful for like IoT devices and use cases. We have a lot of people that use Ingrok to put their Raspberry Pi online. But once you start with that simple thing, you need to start thinking about instead of where they're connecting from, you need to think about who's connecting. And who's connecting ends up being a much more powerful lever to pull. And so we implemented uh, a simple OAuth uh, 2.0 consumer 
it's a, a reliant party if you want to speak in those terms. And so you basically say uh, OAuth dash dash OAuth equals Google. And then what happens is when you hit the Ingrock tunnel like you normally would, just the URL, you hit that URL, it detects, oh, you have uh, OAuth or Google is your OAuth provider, redirects you to Google. You go through that authentication flow and you come back with that access token that Google has granted you. So it ends up being a really quick and simple way to be able to put an identity provider in place. And of course, we support Okta. I was kind of biased to get that one in place. Uh, but it's Azure AD, Forge Rock, Ping, uh, just about any o- OpenID Connect or SAML 2.0 um, compliant identity provider we support out of the box. Fantastic. Uh, you mentioned a couple of other things which people may not be familiar with. Uh, do you want to run us through those briefly? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we we do a ton of things. So since the real big, the, the most common use case that people use Ingrock for is connecting those webhooks, we started digging in deep into webhooks. So we started looking at like, how can we lock these things down? How can we make sure that when your application and you launch your application, you're expecting that webhook from a Twilio request, that SMS message coming in. How can you make sure it's from Twilio? We realized that IP restrictions is useful, but really verifying that webhook provider is way more important. So we ended up building uh, webhook verifiers in place. We've got probably 50 of them or so right now in place in Ingrock out of the box. And in fact, we had accumulated data on about 150 different webhook providers out there. And so we, let's see, back in August, we launched webhooks.fyi, which is just a clearinghouse of here's all this information on different webhook providers. It's a totally neutral community oriented site. It's run off GitHub pages. So if you have, uh, if you find anything wrong or we're missing your favorite webhook provider, just check it out. Do a pull request, add it to the list. We're totally unbiased there. We really want to make sure that this is a definitive source for figuring out how to use webhooks, how to integrate webhooks. If you're a provider and you're considering building webhooks, here's a bunch, here's what the entire ecosystem is doing. So you can decide which capabilities you want to blend in with. Like, do you want to look more like Twilio and their approach, or do you want to look more like Slack and their approach? That sounds like a really good resource. What was the, what was the name of that again? Uh, webhooks.fyi. .fyi. Okay. Yeah, it's a it's a great resource. We've gotten some great attraction out of it. Uh, people love it so far. We're happy about that. I'm looking at it right now. So you mentioned that you added, for example, with webhooks, you, you want to uh, authenticate that the the request is coming from the provider itself. And so you've done that with a bunch of providers, for example, Twilio. So how are you, uh, you know, authenticating that the, the, the request came from Twilio? Yeah, so uh, most webhook providers provide some sort of hash in the header itself on the request. And so um, you can go ahead and you can pull out the hash and then we do that on our side. So the way Ingrock works is when you have the local agent running on your machine, you use that to open a tunnel to our cloud. And then on the cloud, that's where we put those those enforcements in place. So we go ahead and we we dissect the header, we hash it properly according to HMAC, whichever hashing algorithm they use. We validate it. If it validates, great. We pass the traffic onto your app. If not, we drop it in the cloud and it never sees your your network. Perfect. Uh, Keith, on your first job, you worked for a consulting firm for the Library of uh, Congress and your goal was to answer the question, how much data is in the Library of Congress? So how much data is there? Did you get the, get the answer? So we had some projections of what the answer is. And I, I love the fact that you started from like my most recent job to my very first job. Like we're spanning my entire career. We're going to work our way between them. <laughs> yeah, excellent. No, so I joined the Library of Congress to specifically digitize everything they had. And at that point, we figured out that if we digitized about 50 terabytes a day, that would 
let us at least keep pace with everything they had. Now, some context here. This was 2001. And if you remember the the internet and creation of like content in 2001, it was a little bit different than today. There was no social media. YouTube didn't exist. Uh, blogging was still exceptionally rare. Um, iTunes was not a thing yet. So when we say 50 terabytes a day, you have to remember it's a completely different ecosystem than what we have now. But the wild thing about that is that did not address the 225 years of American history up to that point. Because in the States, according to copyright law, when you copyright something, you're supposed to send two physical copies of it to the Library of Congress. So in theory, anything that's ever been copyrighted in the States is on file at the Library of Congress. Now, realistically, it's not available. A lot of it is sitting in boxes and warehouses, but they were working to change that. So our projections were, it was funny, when we were first specking out these systems, we were looking at doing um, uh, these arrays of 120 terabytes each, which in 2001 was mind-blowing. We didn't have an idea of how much data that would be. And then we, we figured out that once the building was fully staffed, we'd fill two of those every working week. And we're like, oh, we, we, we need to plan bigger. Like, we need to do do more stuff with that. Um, but there were like two really cool aspects that came out of that. One, when you're working with a library, you're not just thinking about how do I make this a data available today? We're thinking, how do we make this file format that we're storing things in readable to people in 10, 20, 50, 100 years when the tooling that we have today is long gone? So if you think about like lossless codecs, if you think about... Um, uh, JPEG and GIF and all these things, a hundred years from now, people still will be arguing over how to pronounce GIF. But at the same time, we may not have readers for it. So how do we store these bytes in a way that a hundred years from now, people can make sense of it? So that was one really cool, exciting aspect. Um, the other one, and this actually led into like kind of shaped the rest of my career was the library. There's no feasible way they could digitize everything themselves. They just did not have the staff. They didn't have the equipment. So what they started doing is they started building this uh, interchange format, this XML payload to be able to say, okay, if we digitize some of our collection, we talk to this university and this library and this group over here, and we get them to digitize their own, then we can trade and no one has to digitize everything. And so we created in 2001, which we believe to be the first federal government web service. Because changing, exchanging XML documents is fundamentally a web service. So we were working uh, with WSDL at that time and XML and XSLT, and we were bleeding edge. And sometimes we had the bruises to, to, uh, to demonstrate it, but it was a fascinating, fun topic to dig into. And so this led to your passion towards APIs and, and shaped the rest of your career, really, and, and led to, the, obviously, the, uh, the writing of the book, A Practical Approach to API Design, which is, you're a co-author with, with James Higginbotham, and which uh, seems to be an electronic publication. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's through LeanPub, yes. Yeah, through LeanPub as an e-book. So tell us what led to that, to the creation of that book. What what drove you to create a guide to APIs? Yeah. So fast forward a few years after Library Congress had gone through a couple startups. Many of them had crashed and burned. Uh, but I, I joined this little company called Twilio. And I say little because when I interviewed, there were about 12 or 15 people total, the entire company. When I joined up, I was number 18 or 20, somewhere right in there, um, which is a wild place to be. But one of the things that Twilio did better than anybody else and a lot earlier than most other people was their API design, making sure that it was consistent, that it was understandable, that it was logical, that it was uh, predictable. 
so that a lesson learned in this portion of the API could apply to that portion of the API just as easily. And I spent a lot of time helping people sort of figure out their APIs. And when I left Twilio, I realized that most of the world was behind. Most of the people that are doing API design, it was crap. It was terrible. It was miserable. It was inconsistent, unpredictable. Uh, it wasn't version well. There are all these issues. So I realized pretty quickly that I was in a special place. I had a special understanding that most people didn't. So uh partnered up with James through a mutual connection. Uh, we decided to just document what we were seeing and what we were detecting as the best practices and sort of surveying what was out there. And at the same time, trying to provide some direction on where people could go with it. Yeah. So you've written also about design smells. Um, so which is, uh, as the name implies, something's not quite right. So uh, what are the design smells that you've discovered? Those things where you, you said most people suck at it. So what were the indicators for that? What of bad API design? Yeah, I'd say probably some of the first and most impactful ones were just poor naming. You know, it, 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 what's the saying? In computer science, there's two big problems, naming things, cache and validation and off by one errors. Like these are the kind of things that just completely screw up an API. They make it really hard to understand, really hard to uh, to make sense of, to, to normalize things. And really that next step is uh, the consistency aspect. One of the most powerful things about REST API specifically is how we interact with them. Having a, a stock set of HTTP verbs, having a stock set of response codes means that the understanding that I get in this API, the, the understanding I get in the Twilio API, I can bring over to the Slack API and apply it. We need to think about that within our API itself so that if we have a resource, a set of endpoints in our API and we interact with it this way over here, when we go to a different part of the API. We need to make sure those exact same designs, those exact same principles are throughout. So if we query a particular way, if we search a particular way, if we sort a particular way, it should be exactly the same. When you see those little variations where over here it's one thing and over here it's a different thing, you can tell very clearly that different groups designed the API and they didn't talk to one another. Any other smells that people should be aware of? Yeah, my 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 favorite is uh, I was working with a bank. Jeez, this was seven, eight, nine, ten years ago. Now I was working at the bank, uh, major bank in the states, and they were they're going through that normalization process. They're trying to figure out how do we uh, how do we make sure that somebody has understanding over here in this API and they can apply it over there. And I'll never forget interest rate. So one department called it int rate, I-N-T-R-A-T-E. Very simple. Another one called it interest rate. And they used, uh, was it snake case where it's the underscore in between the words, all lowercase. Another one was we used camel case and somebody else used prefixes. So they were irate. And it was just great because I was like, they were getting so frustrated at each other. I'm like, yes, they were very irate with each other. And that was at the naming thing, but then also the data representation and ended up being a big problem also. So when you and I think about interest rates, we probably think of uh, the actual percentage. You know, you are your mortgage and you say, oh, it's five and a half percent. So we think 5.5 and we just naturally round it off to, you know, uh, not a whole number, but a, a number. Some departments thought of it as a percentage or a, I'm sorry, a decimal. So they represented 5.5 as 0.055. And still other, others thought of it as basis points and basis points are one hundredth of a percent. So 5.5% or 0.055 was represented as 550, 
when it's in basis points. So now when you're trying to apply for a car loan and you're pulling interest rate from here versus here, you need to understand, well, wait a minute, should I divide by 100 or multiply by 100? And those turn into wildly different interest rates if you hadn't guessed by now. So I would I would always say understanding naming conventions, understanding how the data is stored, how it's represented, how it's transferred throughout the system is a really easy place that it's it's easy to screw up and it's hard to realize it until it starts biting you. You were talking about uh, writing part two of the Design Smells uh, article. Uh, what sort of things would you incorporate in part two? Yeah, so one of the things I saw at Okta, I, I launched their API security product, it is fundamentally OAuth as a service. And so one of the big problems I've seen with this and that I'm, I'm probably going to include the next one is uh, about authentication of making sure how are, how are people thinking about authentication? Is it uh, is it header based? Is it tokens? Is it URL extension? Like um, the parameters on the URL? And then once you get past authentication, how are they thinking about authorization? So is it just simply you have access or you don't? Do you have fine grain access? How are how is that represented? Uh, in, in terms of the API, I th- I've, was recently playing with the Zoom API. The Zoom API is exceptionally well done. I was uh, very pleasantly surprised. It's OAuth 2.0, which is a particular surprise, but then their fine grain authorization through um, the scopes is fantastic. I was able to get started and be able to grant really fine grain access to my applications in no time. So I think those are two big things. And then I'll probably attack webhooks. Webhooks are my current fascination with, you know, webhooks.fyi and how people are representing it. And it's kind of, it's frustrating right now how many organizations don't put any sort of authentication or even verification on their webhook. So you get this request that claims to be from the provider and you don't know. It, it's more common than it, than it is not, I would, I would think, that you don't get that hash in the header to authenticate the request. It's It's surprising. And speaking of which, you you did mention that back when you started in uh, with Twilio, I think it was around 2011, they were doing API design particularly well and you realised that most people suck at it. Mm-hmm. We're 10 years since then. What evolution have you seen? In the, not only, clearly the adoption of APIs has been astronomic, but in terms of the design and implementation and trends, what have you seen since then? What have you observed? Uh, so one, I, th- I think the tooling is, is magnitudes better. It's it's some of it's frankly wonderful. Uh, some of it still needs some work. Uh, some of the specifications, like Open API spec, is, is great. You, you can do a lot of things and express a lot of things with it. And then you start getting into the tooling that can actually consume Open API to uh, generate SDKs or generate portals. I th- I think that's that's come a long way, and I, I love those aspects of it. And I love the fact that as we're normalizing around a, a couple different standards. Uh, the creativity that goes with that. I'd say probably the the gap is we have a lot, we have more and more tooling that is um, frameworks for quickly generating APIs. So I was working with a group uh, probably about a year or so ago and they said, oh, well, you know, our framework, we just tag the methods we want open and then our framework will go ahead and generate all the endpoints for this. And I said, okay, well, that's that's great. That, that will get you a rough draft of things, but you really need to pro- apply some design on top of it. If we think back to being like a, a web designer, there was that era of time that every website was bootstrap, right? You remember that time and every website looked exactly the same. It had the same navigation, the same everything. It drove designers up a wall. Now it, it got rid of, it got rid of the worst stuff. Like the the bottom level of like, this is a terrible website design. A lot of that stuff disappeared because the now the 
the minimum viable design was a lot better. But at the same time, it wasn't really a design. It was just the default scaffolding. And so I think right now, the problem that we have in the API space is we have a lot of people using that default scaffolding and then shipping it. And it's really not a design. It's not, it's, it's probably not terrible, which is a good sign, but it's not well thought through. And when, so when, you, when you're talking about that, can give me a specific, are you talking about like, for example, you mentioned with Zoom that the, uh, you could uh, have authorization on the scope of the API. So it, what, what sort of things are you looking for taking from a machine-generated scaffold to actually implementing some design considerations? What, what, would, be the, what would be the leap between the two? So I, I really think of it as a, a ingredients versus a recipe. So if you are tagging individual methods within your controllers and opening those up to the world, you've got some really good ingredients. But a recipe is when you start putting them together in a particular order and you start accomplishing something with it. So I was like thinking of uh, it, it, a really well-designed API supports some workflows. It says, do A, do B, do C. Now you've got the result you want. And so it's really that beginning to end. And you, to do that well, you need to understand the use cases. You need to understand what is your uh, what is your API good at? What are people using it for? How are people using it? Uh, what's the context or the situation that they're using it in? Now that you know that, then you can sort of uh, optimize for that or build a happy path that takes advantage of all those capabilities, like very sequentially, very simply, uh, and you can make a wonderful recipe out of it. Uh, you know, obviously you need to, to talk to the consumers of your API to, to understand those things as well. What are you finding? You mentioned, for example, open API. One of the frustrations I have is whilst that specification has been around for a number of years now, uh, very few companies actually publish an open API specification. You might be lucky to get a Postman collection, for example, but if you want to consume and scaffold their API with machine generation services, getting one is difficult often. What other, what sort of frustrations do you experience with, and I'm talking about, you know, the largest companies pub- publishing some of the largest APIs in the world still fail to do the, the basics as I see it in terms of making their API discoverable. Uh, what sort of frustrations do you experience? Well, I personally suffer that frustration because at Ngrok, we have not released our open API specs yet. Uh, we've got some rough drafts that we've flowed past some people, but we haven't formally released anything yet. Um, but yeah, I'd say that's probably the single biggest problem is that uh, most organizations believe if they have a, a developer portal or a, a relatively simple documentation site, that that's sufficient. And for a lot of people, that is. But sort of if you don't have the capabilities, if you don't have the tooling, or I think the best way to phrase it, if you don't have things in a way that people want to consume, they're just not going to adopt it. They're not going to consume it. And so in some cases, that's going to need just simple documentation. In other ways, that's going to need uh, documentation and SDKs in a particular language. Some cases, it might need SDKs in a framework. I, I actually wrote about uh, I don't know, about a year or so ago, I wrote about developer experience as a way of growing total addressable market. And I said, there are people who all they need are docs. Like if you give them a doc that's roughly correct, they'll figure out the rest. If you give them a doc that's detailed, it gives you, here's the request format, here's the payload, here's everything. You'll have a, a bigger audience that'll be successful with it. If you then give SDKs, they'll have a bigger audience. You give framework SDKs instead of just language SDKs. Now you have a bigger audience. If you start thinking about like a, a WordPress plugin, or you start thinking about no-code, low-code integrations like Zapier or um, Trey or somebody like that, you have even more adoption. So I, I think... We really need to understand what's the audience we're targeting 
if we're targeting the pinnacle of developers that, you know, you give them Emacs and a, a power source and they'll figure out the rest, that may work, but there's like five of those guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we need to think about what's the audience size? Who, who, who wants to use our API? Who do we want to use our API? How do they do it? What do they need? And then solve the problem for them instead of who we suspect might want it at some point. I want to uh, finish up on uh, one of your underlying goals, which is to get good technology into the hands of good people to do great things. What, first of all, where did this goal come from? Yeah, that, that sounds very aspirational and stuff, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> um, so years ago, probably, geez, 15, 18 years ago or so, I realized that the world is only becoming more distributed and computing specifically is what I'm talking about. Uh, power generation and storage is becoming more distributed. Uh, storage and processing and uh, Wi-Fi, all these things are becoming more powerful, more distributed, more flexible. And really, we, we have more edge computing concepts. And so really what I wanted to do is say, if we take that, that premise to the logical end, what does it look like? So I joined Twilio initially because I said, okay, these edges are going to have to be able to communicate. APIs is how they're going to do that. So that made sense. And I, I really pushed to try and get APIs as, as a thing. And obviously thousands of other people were doing the same thing. And then I, I got deep into that and I said, well, you know, the next thing we need to do is we need to be able to add security on top of that. So that's why I joined Okta. And I really said, okay, we need to be able to secure those connections as they're communicating. And then I, I left Okta last year and I realized that the next layer is actually the deepest layer. And that's just fundamentally connectivity. These things can't communicate. They can't communicate securely if they can't connect. So that's why I joined Ingrock. So when I think about great technology and great concepts, I think about how do we take all those edges? How do we take that processing, that storage, that compute, that, that power generation, all those edges and make it work together in a way that's productive? So I, I really think in terms of those things. And when I think of, of great things, I think of basically anything. I really don't have a, like a concrete specific thing there. Um, I have solar on my house. So I, I do all kinds of energy monitoring. I've got, you know, people building all kinds of crazy systems to be able to monitor things and understand here's how these things interact. So I really want to be able to make sure that the stuff we have can connect. It can connect securely. It can communicate. It can interact. And hopefully as an overarching goal, everything works better as a result. We'll, we'll see if it gets there, but I'm hopeful. <laughs> you got to have the goal. The, um, you, you created a YouTube series on your experience of your tree change. What instigated the tree change? Yeah. So uh, let's see. I, I was a city boy. I lived in Washington, D.C. for 10 years. I worked in politics and uh, different industries over there. I spent 10 years in Austin, Texas, which was wonderful, but it was still a city. Uh, early last year, well, late 2020, early 2021, I decided, you know what? Let's move to the woods. So convince my family, let's move to the trees. So I started a website, which has very little on it, uh, Geek Among the Trees. And I figured philosophically, we've all hit that moment where we're debugging that thing. We're pounding our head in the wall. We're so frustrated. We're angry about it. And we want to take our computer and throw it out the window and go live in the trees. So I decided to kind of do that. Um, but what it's really taught me is that when I got out here, I realized I had no skills whatsoever that actually translated to keeping somebody alive. I had awesome API design skills, but I didn't know how to grow vegetables. How remote are we talking about? Like when you're talking about, you know, growing vegetables and survival, like how remote are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, we 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 have water. I, I call this 21st century homesteading. I mean, I've got solar power. I've got Starlink. I've got a Roomba. Uh, but it's 
it's um 10 12 miles to the nearest gas station so it's it, you know it's a 15 minute drive to the gas station uh or to the grocery store or it's a half hour to a hospital if i need one uh so it's it's not the total wilderness you know we can go and get stuff but at the same time i let's see I think from my house, I can see three neighbors. I can see their houses. I can't see them. I can see their houses. So we've got 20 acres in the wood and it's, it's wonderful. A uh, small pond. We've got a big dog that roams around, patrols the place. Uh, yeah, we have fun with it. And you can still do what you do and educate the public and work for all these fabulous companies living that lifestyle. It's the, it's the new economy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And frankly, it's fantastic. Starlink just opened up new worlds to us. Yeah, right. Uh, Keith, thanks so much for your time today. For the listeners of our program, how can they follow you on your channels? What What's the best channel? You mentioned a couple. Uh, maybe you can reiterate those. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Casey Software, just about everywhere. That's C-A-S-E-Y Software. That's on Twitter. That's on LinkedIn. That's on, let's see, LinkedIn is probably one of the better places because uh, I also have videos through LinkedIn Learning uh, that you could definitely check out. Um, and I'm pretty available. If you want to find me on a day-to-day basis, really our Ingrox Slack channel is the place to be. Find me there. I'm happy to chat anytime and help people scheme and debug what they're building. Brilliant. Keith Cassie, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Hey listeners, thank you for joining us in this round of cocktails. Please like and subscribe to check out other episodes of this podcast series. We're also available on your favorite podcast platforms, or you can simply listen in at torocloud.com where you'll find full episode transcripts and show notes. On behalf of the team here at ToroCloud, thank you very much for listening to us today. This has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers! Cheers!